Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 32 of The Lawyerist Podcast, a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. If you enjoy our show, we would really appreciate it if you take a few seconds and give us a rating in iTunes. Lawyerist has a small but growing library of lawyering survival guides. We've got a guide to great law firm website design and our computer security guide, about which Andrew Cabasso of JurisPage says, check out this guide and secure your damn computers. Find out more and get them at lawyerist.com guides or click on guides at the top of the site. Use the code podcast to get 50% off at checkout. Just enter the word podcast into the checkout form. Sponsoring today's podcast is Ruby Receptionists. If you aren't already a customer, just know that you would be happier if you were. Sign up for a free trial at callruby.com slash lawyerist, and Ruby will answer your phones for free for two weeks. Okay, Sam. So I was talking with my fiance, Kelly, about our show, and she is a dedicated weekly listener to our podcast, and she thinks we're due for an overhaul. Oh, yeah? What does she yeah. think? We're, our, we're a little formulaic here. We've got That's our little true. scripted intros, and then we break to an interview, and then you break in with an ad, and then it's over, and it's the same format every time. And maybe we're due for like a little variety show episode or something fun. So does she have ideas, or are we going to throw it out to our audience and ask them to give us feedback? We discussed Dancing Bears um, <laughs> and realized that the audio of Dancing Bears would be a pretty amazing podcast opportunity. Um but I think if there are people who listen and have ideas for how we could shake things up a little, we'd be open to it. Fantastic. I, I love that. So if you have ideas for people you'd like to hear from or ways you'd like us to change it, how about you email us at email at lawyerist.com and let us know what you'd like to hear from our podcast. Sure. Or tweet at us or leave a comment in the podcast post or however you right. want to get a hold of us. Use any one of the numerous ways that you can. Yeah. If you want us to swear more, we can swear more. Absolutely, damn it. Uh, does damn it count? I don't even know. No, damn so, it does not count. No. <laughs> so this week I came across an article that um, was both good and hilarious, or like badly hilarious. Uh, and it said, uh, the Oakland Police Department has been collecting license plate data like many law firm or uh, uh, law enforcement uh, agencies around the country. Um, they have, you know, stationary cameras that snap pictures of license plates and then they store that data. And unlike many of those other law enforcement agencies, the Oakland PD had said that they were going to store that data indefinitely. Uh, although they don't need to, like nobody needs more than six months of data. It never comes up. Uh, but, uh, but it turned out that their plans were thwarted by the fact that they were storing all of that data on a desktop computer running Windows XP that had only an 80 gigabyte hard drive and it got full and the computer started crashing. And so the good thing is that they had to enact a, uh, you know, a, a policy that they're only going to save six months of data. Um, but it also, I think, points out the complete ridiculousness of not just updating your computers. Well, I also think it's incredible that 
they would change their policing, like their data retention policy is part of their policing policy, and that that would change in reaction to the size of their hard drive. Right. And and in the article, uh, they talk about how hard it is for them to procure, procure things. Like, you can get a terabyte hard drive for 50 bucks, but apparently it's harder for them to get that than it would be for them to change their policing policy. Yeah, this is so problematic. It also makes me think that there are a lot of law firms that are probably changing their policies, whether it's a data retention policy or something else in response to their technology, and that's backwards. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. That's the analog here. Is I, I know that's true. I know there are lots of law firms who either have outdated technology and are making decisions based on that, or um, they don't realize what the technology they currently have can do. I, I mean, there was a I, I saw an exchange recently where uh, a lawyer was had a five year old desktop and was just adamant that he was going to upgrade the hard drive to a so- solid state drive instead of upgrading the computer. Um, and to me, that's just silly. I mean, sure, maybe you want to hold on to your computers for longer than five years, but um, but just, you know what, update your technology. Make sure that you're running, you don't have to be on the cutting edge, just make sure you're current. Agreed. And, and, really, and really, if nothing else, don't make any decisions based on having run out of storage space. That's the one thing that is always going to be easy to expand. Oh, it's ridiculous. You know, when we talk about going paperless, people want to know, do I need a new computer? And I always say, well... No, assuming you have a reasonably up-to-date computer. I mean, an 80-gigabyte hard drive is not reasonably up-to-date. Like, I th- I'm pretty sure... Well, actually, I have a 10-year-old desktop sitting next to me right now, um, and actually it has about 1.5 terabytes. So it wasn't even reasonable for a 10-year-old computer. Yeah, although in fairness, my 11-inch MacBook Air does only have like 128 meg or something. Gigabytes, yeah, but still. yeah. yeah. All right, so don't okay. don't make policy decisions for your firm based on the inadequacy of your technology. Especially if you're the police. Especially if you're the police. Today I'm talking to the founder of a pretty unique law firm. It is minority and woman-owned. It uses flat governance structure and transparency to have a pretty unique culture, and it even has an innovation advisory board. Find out what all that means now. This is Sonia Miller Van Ort. I am one of the founders of Sapentia Law Group, which is a minority and women-owned law firm here in the Twin Cities. My practice primarily is in the area of commercial litigation and some employment litigation as well as privacy law. And my background, having practiced for approximately 18 years, has been working in a large law firm in town and then a medium law firm and then uh, joining with some others to develop Sapentia Law Group, which primarily does litigation. We also do transactional work as well, as well as business consulting. So where did the name come from? So the concept of the name was we did not want the firm to be named after any people, as is commonly the case. Uh, We wanted it to embrace kind of the concept of the firm. So Sapentia means wisdom in Latin. And what we wanted that to kind of reflect was that we believe it's our collective wisdom that we bring from the different perspectives and experiences that we've had that adds value to our clients and trying to create a different kind of law firm. And how old is the firm? 
the firm is four and a half years old. Fantastic. So I'm so glad you're here. And um, the reason that we're talking is that I saw you talking about your firm at uh, the MSBA annual convention and just was really interested by a number of aspects of the way that you've structured this firm and um, how it's put together. And, you know, everybody is trying to figure out innovative new ways to build law practices right now. And you are totally doing it. And um, you've been doing it for a while now, and it's been successful. And so I just wanted to talk about kind of what's different about it. So how, how big is it, first of all? We currently have nine attorneys and three staff. And in the four and a half years we've been uh, in existence, we've kind of varied between seven and 10 attorneys. So kind of been right at that nine, 10. It's, it's, a, uh, it's about the right size for you. It is, although our plan, our kind of goal and strategy is we'd like to be about a 20, 20 attorney law firm. Oh, wow. 20, 25 people is kind of as big as we would like to get. And primarily just based on our individual experiences, that's still a, a size where people, people know each other. Um, you can have depth in your different practice areas of expertise, and you can still maintain a culture. And since we're very kind of culture-driven, that's an important aspect to us. And you're, uh, um, well, okay, so let's talk about some of that culture stuff, because that's really what caught my eye, ears. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you've talked about uh, that you have, well, I think you've said you'd try to turn the traditional law firm business model on its, or management structure on its head. So tell me what that means. Well, um, some of us who who started the firm had experience working in you know the large big firm big firm experiences, and there's a lot of you know benefits of working in a big firm. You certainly can learn a lot, um, but you can also kind of start to identify what are challenges to that setting and potential challenges to client service, and so kind of through the years, um, observing, trying to learn from others, um, working in a, a medium-sized law firm and seeing how that worked, you start to identify how, how are things interconnected? How, are, how do billable hour requirements affect team collaboration? How do just the semantics or lingo of your titles in a, in a law firm setting of senior partner, junior partner, senior associate, how do those impact how your team relates and how they're valued? What is your office setting like and what does it inspire? Um, how do you organize your compensation program that motivates the things that are important to the firm? So it's really kind of a combination of looking at all of those issues, looking at having experienced many female um, friends and professionals who who leave private practice, the, the lack of diversity or minority attorneys in private practice, and uh, trying to put those things together to say, how does all connect in and why are we at where we're at? Can we do this a different way? Can we approach this? Let's not think about this as a law firm for a minute. Let's look at what other businesses outside of the legal sphere, how do they organize their businesses and what are they doing to be innovative and then how do you take what they're doing and apply it now to a law firm? So what were some of the problems that you were trying to solve that you identified? I mean, you mentioned like hourly billing and um, not being very flexible with work-life balance and stuff, but were there other specific problems that you were trying to solve? Well, um, those are certainly part of it. I think there are always challenges. Um, obviously, law firms, private law, private law practice, 
the goal is to make money. The goal is to be a profitable business, just as any business. Um, and with that, a lot of times there's a lot of competition, even within a firm. And, you know, everything kind of comes down to money and revenue and generation. And typically that's the primary factor that's used um, in metrics in compensating people. The challenges that arise with that when you start talking about originations, you get into all these issues um, with whose origination is it, um, how do you help a scenario where you there is basically an incentive for people to hoard work because of how they're going to be valued and compensated based on that, right. as opposed to looking at their team around them and utilizing some of that collective wisdom that's there uh, for the benefit of the client instead of being worried about meeting billable hour requirements yourself. Um, you don't do origination credits or fees or whatever? We do We do, do origination credits and fees, but our compensation system is actually it's designed to incentivize sharing of work. Hmm. So it's greater value to the firm if someone can bring in work and share it with one of the teammates as opposed to hoarding their work. There's an incentive for people to help each other and and help someone else on their files and be rewarded for that. So there's a type of internal metric valuing system, so so to speak. Um, that gives everybody, um, we call them revenue points, um, but it's, it's, it's our kind of system that tries to make sure that everybody around the table who's contributing is getting credit for that, whether they're originating attorney or not, but it tries to incentivize the kind of behavior that we want our firm to be about. Gotcha. So, but so what does that look like? I mean, what it, when, when somebody brings in a case and it gets shared around, how does that actually work? In terms of doing the doing the practical work, yeah, I mean, how do you share around? The, if if somebody is listening and says, "Well, I want to do that," um, uh, how would they? I mean, how do they actually do the math on that? Basically, okay. So um, I'm not going to go into how what what dollar amounts we use, but sure. I will say we set a value system that if you bring in ten thousand dollars of work and you do that work, then it's worth X in revenue points. If you bring in that work and you share it with somebody else, it's actually worth a greater amount of revenue points. Gotcha. If you're the person who is doing the work on somebody else's file, you're also receiving some some amount less than X for points. So that's the value system that we've created Hmm. and how we've said we want to inspire people um, not only to go get work, but to share work. Gotcha. And if you're not busy to help others with work. And then it's um, basically to the transparency part, it's something that we track on a monthly basis and it's something that everybody in the firm sees. Wow. It comes out in a report. So everybody knows what everybody's done. They know what everybody's originated. They know what everybody's done um, to work on other people's files. Um, And they know what everybody's revenue points, that term that I've shared, what their revenue points are. There's none of this cloak and dagger behind closed doors. I wonder what that person's making. Correct. As to revenue points, everybody knows what everybody's revenue points are. And as I mentioned before, we have these kind of buckets. Revenue points are a bucket. Mm -hmm. And truly is whatever those numbers are, it's just a pro rata distribution of that bucket. Gotcha. So it has nothing to do with seniority. Um, it has nothing to do with if you're an owner or you're not an owner. 
it's purely based on those results on the value system. And so you can you can decide to assign value to anything you want throughout the year as long as everybody's on board with it. Um, you mean in terms of what? Well, you could. I mean, you could you could decide that uh, you wanted to give revenue points for you know somebody organizing uh, uh, an important firm networking function or something, and you could actually give revenue credit for that, right? Sure. So, sure. So, in theory, yeah. At least. We. I mean, that's not how we do it, but you certainly could. I was saying we have different buckets, so that that kind of activity that you described yeah. probably falls under a different bucket. Yeah. And that's where then the compensation comes from that. But that's exactly right. You could design whatever it is um, a firm decides is important to them, what they want to inspire and what they want to value. And then you set up your compensation structure to mirror that. I love that. And, so- and it, to, I just, the point, I mean, I, I think most firms will say they value the same things. Mm-hmm. Well, generally. So it's not a matter of what you say you value, but I do think it's a matter of how you then compensate to show that you actually do value those things in a way that's measurable. Right, because at the end of the day, compensation is what's going to drive a lot of what people do. Exactly. So you, uh, you, your firm also has a flat governance structure. What is that? I'm having trouble getting my head around that in part because, like, let's say you bring in a brand new attorney. How can they be flat with you? It's interesting. I've heard, I know I've, I've heard people refer to us as a flat governance structure, and I don't even know necessarily what they mean by that. I don't know that okay. I would call it that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, let me deal with the first part of it, flat. Yes, I think that we are flat in the sense that, um, as I said, we, we don't have partners, we don't mm-hmm. have associates, we don't use shareholders. That's not terminology that we use because we don't believe that actually inspires a team working together. Yeah. So we're all attorneys of the firm. Um, it is true that some of us are owners. It is true that some of us are employees. It is true that some are independent contractors. And those are legal relationships that people have with a firm. Um, but beyond the legal relationship, we're a team of attorneys and who are working together. Yeah. So I think that's, I mean, I would agree that is a flattening of sorts. You can see it when you come to our office, I think. Um, our offices are all the same size. There's not a corner office. Um, there is a purposeful intent in our space and where we work for there to be a sense of team and collaboration and not one of hierarchy. Gotcha. It's in our name. Um, so in that way, I would agree that we're flat. I would also agree that um, as part of being a team and being collaborative and trying to find a place where there's common ground for people to talk about issues. We have a firm meeting twice a month. You know, we go through various things. We go through financials. Everyone gets that information. We talk about where we at in our strategies as a firm. When we do our, you know, strategic planning, we do that. All the attorneys are part of that. It's not just the owners. So, I mean, again, if that's what we mean by flat, then that's flat. So maybe it's more of an open governance structure. Right. Now, in terms of, you know, actual, you know, a company's governance structure. So we have a president and I serve as the president and we have an administrative executive team, which is our way of um, kind of sharing in what might typically be viewed as management responsibilities. Although the administrative executive team does not need to be comprised of solely owners. Um, we've really tried to look to a strength-based management style 
um, we're very much into strength finders and mm-hmm. where are our strengths as a team and our passions and how do you align those with, you know, different aspects of the firm, whether it's marketing, whether it's financial, whether it's professional development, and to figure out the best way to, to have leaders in those areas as part of your, your management team, our administrative executive team. Um, and we have a finance committee, which is just just focused on the financial oversight of the firm. So that's kind of our governance structure. Um, you, you, you'll know the different the different ways that I'm describing it and what we call ourselves are much different than what a firm would normally, um, yeah. but they probably are more akin to how a company would. Um, although it's not part of our governance structure in the sense that they are making decisions, we do have um, an innovation advisory board. Hmm. And that board consists of some are clients, there's non-clients, there's lawyers, there's non-lawyers, um, there are um, different sized business. What it is, it's a group of thought leaders. And um, the idea was that we tried to identify thought leaders or people who are running or involved at a high level in different innovative businesses. And we talk to them about what it is we're trying to do as a law firm and that they serve as an advisory board for one another and for us. And that's proved to be a really, a really good thing for our firm. We have nine people on that board and we have, we started that innovation advisory board in our first year. And, um, it's been really fun because they are a very uh, challenging group. They ask a lot of tough questions. They continually keep us, you know, thinking about what we're doing and how is it different and how is it working. And I think that they really enjoyed getting to know each other and sharing kind of their own, you know, you know business issues and, and thoughts. And huh. and we're able to hear what's, what are the innovative things they're doing in their business and then have that discussion. How, do, how would that work in a law firm? So how do the... Um how do the how do the meetings with the innovation advisory board go? Is that like an all day um, uh, meeting, or do you have them over for coffee or cocktails or something? Or what, what do those meetings mm-hmm. look like? Yeah, we do them uh, three times a year, and it's a half day meeting. Usually, it starts around one o'clock, and then we go until about four thirty or five o'clock. So we have a meeting for about four hours, and then and then we just have a happy hour, more social time together to visit. Gotcha, and. Um, you know, I think people really enjoyed it. And at one point last year, because it had been our third year, some of them came to me and said, we were concerned after the meeting, we were concerned that you were going to tell us um, our term was up. And I said, no, no, <laughs> your term's not up unless you're ready to step off. <laughs> so it's been a really good thing. Um, and how do you make sure that they feel like they're getting something out of it? Yeah, no, that's a good thing. And that's something I'm always concerned about. And I, I continually ask them that. Um, and we have, you know, parts of our discussion that are specifically directed, not about the law firm, but about them mm-hmm. and about what's happening. Um, and I continually ask that question, are, is, what are you getting out of this? And, um, they apparently are getting enough out of it that they want to keep doing it. So it's been, it's been a fun experience. And I know that I think it's hard for law firms. Um, there's a, there's a kind of risk involved with, with asking or seeking advice from yeah. people outside of law. <laughs> yeah, totally. And it's sometimes a sense of, we don't need to, you know, we know what we're doing and we don't, you know, 
they don't understand law firms or, you know, that kind of sense. And, and really it's been a really helpful and educational process. And some of them are attorneys and some of them are in-house counsel, but some of them are small business owners. And, you know, it, you get a lot of diversity of thought, which is helpful. That's really a really cool idea. I, I think, um, I don't think most firms do that sort of um, uh, soliciting th- thought leaders uh, to comment on their firms. That's a really cool thing that you guys are doing. Um, so tell me about your fee quoting process, because you, you mentioned that in passing. And, um, I, you know, there's there's all this noise about how the billable hour needs to die and, you know, flat fees are the future. And, and I've really pushed back on that o- over the years because I think flat fees are great sometimes, um, but they're just sort of a tool in the toolbox. And it sounds like you guys have internalized that to a really great degree by always giving your clients options when it comes to the fee that they have. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting when you give people the option, which way they go on it. And I think that there's a lot of, um, a lot of demand and concern about hourly rates and how they're constantly increasing and a desire for something different. And yet there's a fear of something different as well. So, you know, we've had people, uh, companies, we largely represent companies, um, sometimes, but sometimes individuals as well. Um, about, I'll say about 55 to 60% of the work that we do is on alternative fees. So we actually do a lot of it. It's a big portion of our business. And, um, but we do think it's important to give people the option. And, you know, it, it takes a lot of up, upfront work to figure out what's going to be a good alternative fee. Mm-hmm. And because our firm is about 70% of our work is litigation, um, that's also, I think, a sphere where people have traditionally said, well, you might be able to do alternative fee work or flat fee work on transactional matters, but you really can't do it in litigation. Right. Um, and I push back on that and say, I don't think that's true. I build flat fees in litigation for years, so yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's definitely doable. I mean, the more data that you have, the more experience that you have, I think the easier it becomes. But, um, you know, we're very focused on on trying creative things, evaluating them, tweaking them. And again, I think a key component to alternative fees working is transparency. And so that means, I mean, we still bill our time. I mean, it's important for us to bill our time and to know exactly what we did to be able to then analyze it and say, how did this work for us? Mm -hmm. Um, But, I mean, our clients who are getting billed on alternative, they're getting the bills. They see what they're doing. They have to feel like they're getting value and say, yeah, this, this was a good arrangement for both. Do you have a sense for what makes a client choose, uh, say, a flat fee versus an hourly fee? Well, I think there's a couple of different things. Um, you know, the huge benefit to, and we say flat fees, we do other alternatives other than flat fees, but let's just talk about flat fees. I mean, whatever the alternative fee is, a benefit to it is some type of budget certainty. And that's a huge thing for clients. I know that a lot of times people equate alternative fees as discounts or, you know, law firms will tend to think, well, you're, um, you're going to make less money. And I don't equate it that way. What I look at as alternative fees is a, is a different way of packaging pricing. Well, if, it, if you're going to make less money, why would you do it? 
Exactly. Exactly. And, and I mean, you can make less money if you haven't figured out a good alternative fee. Right. That's, that's certainly true. Um, but I think that, you know, the transparency will make a difference when clients, there's, if, they've not, if they don't know you, if they've not worked with you before, I think the number one thing is going to be, is there budget certainty? And the second factor is trust. Because it's almost that psychology, well, if you're offering me something bad, something different, it must be better for you, law firm, <laughs> which is kind of a, a different way. But I do think there's sometimes that fear factor of the unknown of, well, maybe maybe I'm missing something. So I think the trust, that's where we've had the most success, where we've had an opportunity to work with a client before. They're also more willing to try something new. And then once they've done it and they see what they get for that and the information that they have to kind of substantiate it, they're more likely to do it again. So what, were there any big obstacles that you've overcome in the last four and a half years to make, get this firm to where it is today? Um, certainly. And <laughs> there always continue to be obstacles. So, you know, this is, this is a different untested model. Um, and in some ways we've tried to take on a lot of, a lot of issues all at once. And, um, I've heard somebody refer to it as a case study in progress, and I and I think that's probably fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, a, a challenge is that it's it's so different. Um, there's hard to have other things to compare it to, right. and um, that means that it's hard, I think, for lawyers to take a, a risk if they're considering joining the firm. Um, it's hard to compare apples to apples. And I think that that's a challenge for us. Certainly someone, an attorney, needs to have more of that entrepreneurial risk-taker profile, I think, to be willing to join our firm. And most lawyers are not risk-takers. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's an inherent challenge in that regard, I believe. Um, I'm hoping that with more, you know, more as more time goes on and it becomes more established and proven, um, that that will open up the doors for some people to join us um, as well. So I think that's that's a challenge. Um, certainly when you're, you know, just a smaller business in general, whether you're talking about a law firm or not, there's always challenges of, you know, getting the exposure so that people know who you are. It's a different name. And so the one good thing about that is that people... I think what you hear it a few times, you, you, you'll remember it. It's different. Um, but getting that exposure and getting those, that, the, um, you know, the marketing efforts out there such that people know what it is that we offer and why it's different. Mm-hmm. So that's something we've you know, we spent a lot of time on the last four and a half years, but it continues to be something you need to do. And so those are some of the obstacles um, I think we have in being a, a different kind of organization. Cool. Um, and so I'm always interested to know uh, what kinds of software do you use to keep the firm going apart from the usual Microsoft Office package? Yeah, you know, we don't have any particular um, fancy software that we're using or databases in particular. I mean, we use kind of those typical, you know, Microsoft Office suite type of stuff. Um, we use Rocket Matter oh, okay. as a billing management tool. And... Um, it seems to have worked well for us. I mean, I think that at some point in terms of the size of a firm, it might be less, um, it might be less helpful. But at the size that we're at, it's, it's proven to, to do what we need it to do. So otherwise, I don't know that I can, there's anything. And are you guys a Windows firm or a Mac firm? 
We're a Windows firm. Gotcha. Well, we are a Windows firm, although we have the compatibility, and we've had a few attorneys who are real Mac people, and so they've integrated in with their Macs. But Gotcha. Yeah. If somebody wanted to do what you've done, it sounds like they might need to sort of maybe take a week off um, and do a little personal <laughs> retreat to rethink their entire firm from the ground up. But if somebody wanted to start uh, implementing some of the the most successful things you've done, how would you recommend that a small firm start doing that? That's a really good question. I do think um, <clears throat> you got to really nail down and, and take that time to think, well, what what is it that you're trying to develop? Because this would not, this isn't the model for everybody, mm-hmm. and I, I recognize that. This is a model because of who the people are that we have here, and these shared interests and values, and a real desire to come up with um, something that's uh, more palatable, or that people can be excited about coming to work every day. Maybe the um, so, maybe the piece that people need to try and replicate is not the specific things that you've done, but um, the real sort of searching self-examination of what you value and how to bake you those values into the firm. I think that's exactly right. I mean, that's pretty much how we came up with it in terms of a process. It was what are the things that we've seen that work well in the firms that we've been at? What are the things that we'd say, in our view, didn't work so well or were big challenges? And so if you're going to start over, what could you do on the front side to try to not get to that challenge? Um, And I do think that there's a lot of interconnectedness with how you establish the firm from day one um, in terms of you know, all of it comes down to what is it you're going to value, what is it you're trying to achieve, and then set your metrics around those things, whatever they are. I mean, your met- the values might be a lot different from what I've described, but you set your metrics around that in every way that you can. And I try to do a 360 on every part of your business to set it around those things. That's what we're trying to do. Well, that's great advice, and thank you so much for being with us today, Sonia. I really appreciate hearing about your very unique firm. Thank you. Thank you. This episode of the Lawyerist Podcast is brought to you by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answered the phones for my law practice for a couple of years. And here's the thing. When I was answering the phone, I was often distracted. I might be in the middle of reading a brief that pissed me off from opposing counsel uh, or dealing with something stressful or that I really needed to focus on. And so the phone rings. It's an interruption kind of drives me crazy, and I'm never at my best. That's not the face I wanted to put forward to clients. So when I got Ruby, the whole thing changed for two reasons. First, because uh, the ladies at Ruby are fantastic on the phone. They're cheerful, they're friendly, they're helpful. And what happened is that people would regularly say, wow, I just had such a great experience with your receptionist. And second, because my instructions were that anybody who asked for me by name should be put straight through to me. The way that happens is it's a soft transfer, meaning the first person I hear from is a receptionist from Ruby who says, hi, this is so-and-so from Ruby Receptionists. I've got so-and-so on the phone and they're calling about this. Should I put him through? And so I have the opportunity to say, no, tell them to call this person, tell them I'll call them back later, please take a message, or sure, put them through and I'll talk to them. 
And just that little bit of buffer meant that by the time I got on the phone, I was prepared for the conversation and I could be in a much better mood. Hiring somebody to pick up my phones and answer my phones for me that is as friendly and professional and helpful as Ruby was one of the best things I did for my practice and for my sanity and productivity. So you should check out Ruby and you've got no reason not to because it's free for 14 days. And if you check them out by going to callruby.com slash lawyerist, they will also waive the setup fee should you decide to stick with them. And if you sign up for the trial, they will take good care of you. And I'm pretty sure you will want to hire them in the end. So go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and find out for yourself. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.